0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFaul, Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the second of a summer-long series of podcasts about the system of camps and ghettos that pervaded Nazi Germany, its satellite states, and the regions it controlled. Earlier this summer, I talked with Jeff McGargy about the Holocaust Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos. Later in the summer, I'll have interviews with Nick Voxman about the Nazi concentration camp system. With Shelley Klein, about the guards who staffed the camps, and with Dan Stone, about the end and aftermath of the camp system. Today, though, I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Helm to the show. Sarah has written a tremendous book titled *Robinsbrook: Brook, Life and Death in Hitler's Concentration Camps for Women. The book is at turns grim, touching, and just occasionally inspiring. It's one of the most accessible of the many books I've read on the concentration camp system and it focuses on one of the underserved of the victims of the Nazi genocide, women. I'm greatly looking forward to talking with her about Ravensbrück. And with that, Sarah, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So why don't
0: we start by just giving you a chance to say uh, um, a little bit about um, yourself. You you were a journalist, right?
1: Yep, I was a journalist uh, from the moment I left uh, university, where I studied English literature. And uh, I was uh, covered quite a lot of um, criminal justice stories to begin with for various newspapers, and then became a foreign correspondent. And I uh, worked in Jerusalem for three years, and I did uh, cover several conflicts and uh, international human rights stories. Um, that were, may have have inspired a certain interest in mm. this subject. Um, then yeah. I, I, I gave that up. Um, well, in a way, when I, when I had my first children and decided to mm-hmm. freelance as a journalist and then started writing books as, a, as an easier way to combine uh, living at home and writing.
0: <laughs> I rarely hear people say that they had children and it was easier to write a book than something else. No, but... well,
1: I discovered that not to be the case, of course, but that was the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think living with a writer for children is a very um, stressful experience. I don't advise it necessarily. <laughs>
0: So how how did you come? So, so you said that you did some human rights stuff. What, what this isn't your first book. What did you what, what what did you write about first?
1: Yeah, my first book. Uh, well, when I, I my last posting as a foreign correspondent was in Brussels, uh, uh, which I, a story which was very much a political story, bureaucratic story, and I found that really quite boring and and, and unsatisfying. And I started uh, covering various other local Belgian and Flemish stories, which were breaking hmm. at the time about. Um, Rehabilitating uh, Nazi collaborators um, during the war, there had been various sort of Flemish characters who'd been um, executed for co- collaborating with the Nazis, and I found this much more interesting. And and, and and really got into the subject. And also, I uncovered the story of the um, SOE operatives, who were British mm-hmm. Special Operations Executive um, agents, and uh, because they had been involved in, in the Low Countries and in France, the, uh, SOE was an organization set up by Winston Churchill to to try and and, and take the fight back to Europe after the the disastrous first uh, months of the war. And he parachuted um, British men and women into occupied Nazi countries. Um, Now, in the course of uh, researching that story, I came up with the idea of a novel. I thought I'd write a novel about one of these women that was uh, parachuted into France. Um, But being the journalist at heart, of course, I started researching this novel uh, because I find it, the the cliché for me is just so true that the truth is is always the best story. Mm. And Mm. I discovered a, a woman called Vera Atkins who was the mastermind of the French section of SOE. She was not an agent herself. She sent them into occupied France. She sort of managed them. She hired them. Now, a lot of them were women. And I found this woman who was still alive. Uh, she was uh, about 90 and I went and met her and uh, she was quite extraordinary because she herself was of German-Jewish uh, origins who had come to Britain in, in 1938, escaped the continent and uh, had, had taken on this work. But the most interesting thing of the story was that a lot of these people, these agents and these women indeed were captured and they disappeared. And so Vera Atkins, um, went to look for them. So my first book was about her search for the missing, and that took me into uh, Nazi-occupied Germany, sorry, yes, uh, sorry, Allied-occupied Germany Mm. in 1945, Mm. just after the end of the war, when she started hunting through this extraordinary world of of total chaos, bombed-out Germany, missing people, refugees absolutely everywhere, to find out what had happened to her missing girls, as she called them. And the trail led her to several concentration camps. And for the women, particularly Ravensbrück, where about five of them uh, died in different ways. And and that is what led me to Ravensbrück. Hmm.
0: So in your introduction, I'm I'm really struck. You, you, You talk about doing some of the research you mentioned and reading some of the writings about academic writings about the camps and the camp system. And finding them clinical or scientific. Uh, and in contrast, you describe yourself as wanting to write a biography of the camp. How, how did you intend to do things differently that would make it a, a biography as opposed to an academic or a, or a clinical kind of treatment?
1: Well, it's a good question. I think it's to do with, it's something to do with the way different people approach a story. I think people who write, you know, their motivation for writing is different. Um, and the way they feel feel that they've grasped the story is different. In my case, I'm not a trained historian. Yeah. Now, uh, sometimes trained historians are quite sort of patronizing about that. In fact, there was, <laughs> uh, I don't mind too much, but I mean, you know, I, I just take notes that they, they are. I, I actually don't mm-hmm. see there's a great deal of difference between a historian and a good journalist. I'm just a journalist in these books who's gone back in time. And yeah. so what you're trying to do in my case is to... Recreate how it might have been. And that's what interests me. It always interests me. What was this extraordinary place called Ravensbrück? I was beginning to pick up some first-hand testimony, which is where you feel you're really getting to grips with the reality. Um, When I talk about, when I read the scientific accounts, and um, in the 90s, um, particularly German academics themselves started work uh, in a serious way on these camps, and particularly on Ravensbrück, actually. and, of course, their material is very helpful. There's a lot of, of, of detail in it, a lot of information in it, a lot of, of, of facts and figures in, in these. In these. But, but, but they put a barrier between the reader and the, the camp. The camp, it, it, it felt to me like it was sort of behind a grey wall. I mean, it literally behind a grey wall, but also behind mm. a grey wall for the reader of academic theory. Uh, yeah. It just wasn't coming alive. Um, and so I wanted to... To, to, to get much, much closer. I wanted to get inside the camp somehow with the women, which of course meant finding as many survivors as possible, but actually not only finding the survivors, but finding really good testimony that was credible and real and instant and, and, and preferably early so that you get the voices. And by bringing the voices in, the reader gets feels that they really have had a first-hand experience of it. And for the writer, for me, that is the most satisfying thing. It's, it's like mm. being a painter. You're you Basically, you're painting a picture to try and give people the experience. And that's, that's really what I aim to do.
2: So how did
0: you... It's been years and years and years. How did you find the women you interviewed?
1: Well, in the first instance, it looked like it was going to be really, really very difficult. I mean, I am as I say, a a trained journalist and a sort of dogged hunter-down of people. (laughs) It's just kind of what you do and you get the bit between your teeth and off you go. Um, And it was the same with this. Although, you know, in the first instance, it it all looked pretty impossible because Mm -hmm. another of the first um, pieces of of testimony that I was um, exposed to, of course, were uh, the the evidence from the war crimes trial because the British um, ran the, uh, the war crimes trial for Ravensbrück at Hamburg in 1946 to 1948. And all the documents are in London. So from that point of view, I was extremely fortunate because a large and vital um, uh, amount of, of testimony is sitting here just you know, a mile down the road from where I live and in English. So that was very useful. And in it, of course, is some of the very earliest and strongest testimony with names and in many cases addresses so, but nevertheless, the kind of addresses that were on these uh, documents were, you know, um, I don't know, you might get a, a, a name of a Russian woman who, who, who now worked at Leningrad Railway Station um, uh, and so on. So one was felt that he, somehow, you, you know, you'd never find them. They were, must be dead. You know, they worked at Leningrad Railway Station when they gave their testimony in 1948. Where on earth would they be now? And mm. so on. So it was tantalizing in that that sense. But, of course, you then just go the usual route. Um, You write letters to ones that that seemed plausibly to be still living where they said they were. Um, Mm -hmm. An example of that uh, was a, a wonderful French survivor who was called Dr. Lulu Lepause, who came from Bordeaux. Now, I had actually come across Lulu's testimony when I was doing my first book because she was quite important in that story as well. But I'd never tried to find her at that stage because she wasn't important enough to the story. But I'd noted, mm-hmm. and one it's very interesting, reading this testimony, uh, you get a feel, even from the typed testimony in, in a war crimes trial, of the personality, the credibility, mm-hmm. and the, uh, in a sense, the astuteness of the witness. And Lulu Lepore's always struck, her character came over in her testimony, mm-hmm. and I'd always wanted to meet her. She gave a very quite brief statements, um, not particularly emotional, slightly clipped, but absolutely tight and astute and on the button, and I thought I'd love to meet this woman, especially if she was a doctor, because that gave her a very interesting role in the camp. But of course, again, Lulu gave her an address in Merignac in France, and she was very old also. I thought she was almost certain to be dead. I think when I first read her testimony, she must have been already about 94, 95. So I wrote, you know, not, not expecting to get a reply. But then I got an um, a, a, a answer on my answering machine one day with this wonderful, deep French voice, very strong hmm. voice. And she said, I must immediately get on a train and go over and stay with her. <laughs> huh. And she would talk to me as long as I like. And I went and I stayed with her three times at her house in Bordeaux for about three days each time. I got hmm. several hours of Lulu on tape. Um, and she was the most wonderful witness. So she was one example, but other people, it was just word of mouth. I mean, you have to find, there are, with all these stories, there are people who do know. Um, and and, and there, are, there are linchpins to the story, there, there are sort of keys to the story. And one of those examples was, it takes you a while to find those people, and once you've found them, you're fine. Um, one of the ones I found, I didn't find her on my first trip to the camp. Of course, I went out to the Ravensbrück Memorial site very early on because they have archives and obviously they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of contacts because survivors have started coming back to the camp and so on. So there are networks. Mm. And eventually, but, but it's also very political. Um, you don't necessarily get put in touch with the people you want. There's a sort of There's a politicization even of the survivors' committees. So some people don't want you to meet. For example, there's a jealousy within the Russian experts group. Um, there's one woman at the camp — and I'm not going to name names here, but one woman at the camp who has written about the Russian survivors um, in such a way that has deeply infuriated another woman who has written and knows about yeah. the Russian survivors. Mm-hmm. And so there are different camps, and then one needs to get to the right one. Anyway, eventually I made contact with a, a woman called Berbel schindler Schindler-Sitzko, who was a daughter of, an, of a German survivor, an East um, German survivor, who ended up in the East where the camp was, and her mother had been instrumental in setting up the first memorial site in, in the mid-50s. And Bärbel, as a little girl, had literally grown up with the camp, the German survivors, the East GDR survivors, as her family. You know, mm. she'd gone to all the early meetings, the great smoke-filled meeting rooms of all these, these German women and that whole kind of very, very Eastern Bloc feel, and, 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 and she'd been educated in Moscow, spoke fluent Russian, and she's, she's very much still alive today, Bebel. She's, she's, she's a young woman of, of 70, I think, and, um, yeah. and she knew absolutely everybody on that side of the story, and, um, mm. or she knew how to find them because she is herself an academic. She's a Dr. Babosh in the Cisco but she's also, I think, at heart herself a journalist in a way. She's the most uh, dogged researcher herself. And um, so once we were linked up, and she took her a little while to decide, I think, to help me. You know, people are suspicious at the beginning. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. like your approach. They don't quite know how you're going to do it. And she came with me on a couple of occasions. We went to Vienna, for example, where there was a meeting of the the International Committee, as they're called, of the Ravensbrück survivors, the sort of grandees of the different um, survivor countries. And um, she helped me there, and we interviewed people together, and I think it was there that she saw she liked the way I Mm -hmm. talked to people and what they were telling Mm -hmm. me, and she has helped me enormously ever since and that helped open the doors in the East and in Russia, which was very difficult. And then in other parts of the world, um, you know, there were similar people or else I was lucky and I should say that um, in my own country, in the UK, in London, I found several survivors living, you know, on my doorstep. Huh. Um, very large number of Poles, of course, came to Britain,
2: mm-hmm. well
1: and to mm-hmm. America but in, 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 and, and, and of course I spoke to Poles in America as well, but uh, a couple of my very important Polish witnesses just literally live a few streets away from me. And um, <laughs> one wonderful woman called Maria Bielicka, who I discovered quite late in the day, um, I, w- I went to meet her, I think, the second time. I realized how valuable she was. Not that these, some of these women have got most extraordinary high level of intuitive intelligence. They were very, very quietly astute and interesting and... and perceptive about the entire nature of the, the story. And she told me the second time that I went to see her that she'd just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and mm. that I really should keep going back as often as I could. And I think that Maria was an example of people who probably hadn't spoken very much until their very late years and now felt they mm. really must testify um, to everything they knew. And in fact, I went to Maria's funeral about eighty months ago at a, mm. at a Polish church very close to where I live. And and I should just say that there's also another extraordinary survivor called Selma van der Peer, who's Dutch, who Mm -hmm. is very much still alive and also lives very close to me in West London. Selma married, um, well, she she actually married another Dutchman, but he was a British journalist living in, he he worked for um, Dutch newspaper, lived in Britain after the war, and she came to live here. She lives uh, very close to me. And Selma has uh, accompanied me on many of my interviews in the British media over the book because she is a wonderful witness and she plays golf twice a week, bridge three hmm. times a week, and, and just had her 93rd birthday. So that gives you a little idea of how some of them have, have been found. So,
0: And we mentioned this in, in chatting before the interview, but so, so you get all this testimony. How do you shape a story out of these, these um conversations.
1: Well, that, in a way, is really the biggest challenge, um, and it's not out of, only out of the conversations, it's about, out of also the vast amount of written mm-hmm. testimony as well. Mm-hmm. I, well, first of all, I decided fairly early on that I wanted to kind of take this approach of the biography of a camp. It wasn't going mm-hmm. to be about one. It would have been much, much easier, of course, if I told the story through one individual, or possibly one national group, or perhaps take an a theme. Um, what again, going back to the academic approach that I was uh, rather critical of, because I found it sort of, in a way, um, sterilised the story, is that they kind of carve it up, and it is much easier to do that. I mean, you might study one aspect of the camp. You know, you study the the treatment of. Um, <clears throat> Of the medical victims of medical experiment victims, or you study the, the SS or whatever it is, and, and then got a focus, but i, I wasn 't mm-hmm. going to do that, so I already made it much more difficult for myself by deciding <laughs> to write a biography the entire <laughs> camp, but the way I focused it very well was to do it from beginning to end. I thought that that is what you do with a biography; you may mm-hmm. tell it mm-hmm. life from beginning to end, so that was a good sort of starting point you 've had a sort of trajectory and um, and also, if you have that. Actually, a, colleague, a wonderful colleague of mine um, who is in fact an American journalist called um, David Hoffman said to me some time ago that I must remember that chronology is your friend and um, made out a quote from someone else but anyway it's always struck me and I, it's absolutely right if you stick to chronology it's an obvious approach but it's the best because mm-hmm. if you stick to chronology one thing leads to another and you can then see why and how things happened. Or you can see how there was no reason for them to happen. It explains both. So so I had chronology, and I had beginning and end. But then the next thing that didn't appear immediately, but that began to appear, was that, that there were phases of the camp. Everyone talked in phases. And that the phases tied in, to some extent, with national groups arising. Mm -hmm. And so then I hit on the idea, again, quite early on, and I think it was a good idea. And and after I'd done this, it certainly made the broad brush approach easier, which was to choose three or four national groups Mm -hmm. um, to focus on important big ones, uh, which fitted in with the different phases to some extent, although, of course, they overlapped. So the first one was obviously the um, German-Austrian, the earliest prisoners, um, the communists, the the so-called asocials that were rounded up in Germany right at the very beginning and put in the camp, the prostitutes um, and, and, and the, the other political prisoners, Jehovah's Witnesses and Gypsies and so on. So I had the early phase kind of focused on them. Uh, then the next massive input of prisoners came, of course, as Hitler marched on east um, from Poland which uh, the Polish ended up being by far the largest number in the camp. And also there was a very good specific Polish story, which was they were really the main victims of the medical experiments at Ravensbrück. And so Section 2 focused around them. And um, then the Russians, which were absolutely fascinating, possibly the most intriguing for me of all the stories, especially the Red Army women who were marched all the way from the Crimea and mm. um, that took a lot of, of digging out, but um, but I did. And so they fitted into the third phase when things were sort of beginning to build up, the camps beginning to kind of get over full and, and, and beginning to be um, show some of the, the the worst elements. And then the French, which of course were a completely different story, although there had been some French arrived earlier, that by far the majority arrived in early 1944. So that takes you through 44. The later, the last phase, obviously, it's much more mixed, um, but nevertheless, it did distill a little bit around the arrival of the people from the death marches in the east when the camps were evacuated further east, and also the Hungarians. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, So that was the general, the, the overall design, if you like, structure, but then within those groups, of course, it's always absolutely vital to pick out individual stories. So my next challenge was to choose and this was extremely difficult to choose mm. which characters and, and of course I was going to have so many that I couldn't none of them could be portrayed in too much depth because there wasn't the space but and I'd by that time accumulated so many stories. <laughs> but so the really difficult thing was to get the characters with the voices that you know, that would take you through that section and hopefully also yeah. some of them obviously would die, some of them disappeared off the out of the story but some of them mm. carried on all the way through and I quite like that because it's quite novelistic
2: and I mm. quite like
1: the idea of, of stretching the sort of non-fiction into not, not, not into making anything up but into, into the narrative just making it more of a novelistic narrative approach So, um, and then the really difficult time having kind of come up with that approach was then to deal with the material because as always, if I look now, I mean, the book sitting by me on the sofa, it's sort of, you look at it now and you think, gosh, actually, even I think, goodness, um, goodness <laughs> that was too difficult. You know, the story's relatively <laughs> obvious. But I mean, you know, it was just piecing together this um, this mosaic, really, and making it fit together. And mm. also, of course, the the other crucial thing all the time was getting the context. And so you've got that for the camp, you've got to get you know, what's the history, what's the context, mm-hmm. what's, what's Hitler up to, what's Himmler doing, you know, what's going on in the wider world, and, and when are they going to get the, when, 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 when are the Allies going to land, and, and so on. And, and, and there are other big picture stories that have to be woven in all the time. So it was, it was really very, very difficult, but um, and that's why it took me such a long time. <laughs> hmm.
0: so, so to go with this biography metaphor, um. Why is the camp born? Why is Ravensbrück there at all?
1: Well, I think as with all these things, I don't think there's a sort of straightforward answer. Um, mm. But I, I think one of the things that I realized quite early on um, is that so much of this was done on the hoof. You know, it was mm. done... They, it was crisis management. And so in the 1930s, after Hitler first came to power... And uh, he wanted to round up all the political opposition in Germany, None of his first kill off, all, all possible um, opponents of his power, or anyone who questioned him. Uh, they were all put in, 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 in concentration camps uh, Dachau, Sachsenhausen, Sossenberg, and the, the men's camps. In those early days, uh, they were not arresting women in the same way, they were not putting women in concentration camps. Mm. Uh, or subjecting them to the same kind of horrific torture and um, killing them off as they were with the men. Uh, the reasons for that are quite interesting. I don't think they're that surprising in a way. I think one thing, they, were, they, they didn't see women as a threat in the way they saw men as, as a threat. There were fewer women who were, obviously, who were agitating as political opposition. Certainly, they weren't, they weren't a small number. they were a lot fewer the men were the dangers. Women were not taken seriously. I think one that comes up, you know, the whole Nazi approach to, to womankind was that they were not, not not serious human beings. You know, they were there for breeding mm-hmm. and for looking pretty sometimes and they were obviously quite useful to have around, but they weren't serious. Um, they weren't allowed to take part in any serious part mm-hmm. of life. So it was kind of, would have been slightly contradictory to have taken them so seriously that they had to be put in the concentration camp. So they weren't. <laughs> Um, But they were put in, but nevertheless, there were a lot of women rounded up because obviously there were a lot of wives of communists um, who were active, who worked with the various
2: Mm -hmm. communist
1: parties as secretaries or clerks or whatever. There were indeed uh, women members of the Reichstag, communist women members of the Reichstag, some of them, because women had become very um, liberated and political and um wrong under the in the 20s under the weimar regime and 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 a lot of these women you know had to be silenced as far as it was concerned so Mm
2: -hmm. quite a
1: few were indeed arrested but they were put in prisons where they were treated very badly they were separated from their children they were not told how long they were going to be in prison and so on and so forth um and they were also put in some sort of in a way, precursors of Ravensbrück. There was a place called Moringan, which is very important, which was possibly mm. sometimes called a concentration camp. It was actually a converted workhouse, and I think it may have come under the sort of concentration camp administration, but it was nothing like a concentration camp. But some of them were put there, and they, were, they weren't they were treated so badly. They, they were very unhappy, and as I say, the worst thing, that many of the testimonies show, is that they, they didn't know when they were going to get out. They, a lot of their husbands were meanwhile in Dachau or in Buchenwald or wherever, and they didn't know what was happening to them or they knew they were dead. So uh, it was an awful position to be in, but it, itself in terms of conditions wasn't so bad. And then what then happened, um, towards, as war began to, began to get nearer and more inevitable, in sort of 1937, 1938, um, more women were arrested and these prisons started getting um, over, massively overfull. But in addition to that, um, what had happened was that Himmler by now was head of, and had been for some time, head of the concentration camp system, head of the SS, and head of the Gestapo, and he, this was his power base. The camps were very much his power base, and some of the male, many of the men prisoners who had originally been arrested had by now really been um, pacified and, 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 and tortured and and. and reduced to, to impotence and released those who were still alive from the camps. And he was, there were less people in the camps. And Himmler, to some extent, was looking for ways of filling his camps again because you know, he needed camps to, to maintain his power. That was one thing. And, and secondly, mm. at the same time, they were probably at Himmler's instigation to a large extent, extending the, the, the group who were being arrested to the so-called asocials, the, 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 the sort of down and outs of German society. So at first it had largely been political opponents, and then it became these people who were just not wanted in, in the German gene pool. Uh, anybody who, who, who simply didn't, who, who was sort of defective, who, who was uh, the people on the streets, the beggars, the poor, the, what they call the work-shy um, and so on, you know, petty thieves, people, women who were working as prostitutes or who were even thought to be working as prostitutes and so on. And they started rounding them up, and they were called asocials. And of course, amongst that group, there were bound to be just as many women as men. And suddenly there was this hmm. massive number of women being rounded up, and they needed somewhere to put them. And the, the, what shows us that this was all very much crisis management was that first of all, they they, 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 they put them in this, um, what had been a male concentration camp, but it was actually a a fortress at Lichtenberg, and put them there. And then Ravensbruck was built as a purpose-built camp, and it opened in May 39 uh, to hold the women, because you know they just needed, uh, in Himmler's view, it was necessary. There were so many now arrested that they needed a camp for them. I mean, of course, the other important factor, but we don't know because we don't have himmler's real thinking on this um mm. war was coming, and of course he will have anticipated that uh, certainly with the um the coming invasion of poland and and obviously Czechoslovakia, there would be more women arrested in those countries as well, so he's yeah. also looking ahead but but there are different different views on how many they thought they would be bringing in at that point. So those two reasons, I think, mainly made it suddenly change in 1937, 1938, so that there was a need for a camp for women.
0: And, and that's the distinctive part about this camp, um, is, is that it's intended for women. Is that reflected somehow in the design of the camp, or the, the structure of the people who ran the camp, or, or did they just simply adopt the model that already existed?
1: Um Well, to a large extent, they adopted the model that already existed, and there had been already a new, a a whole new design for male concentration camps Mm. um, that had been implemented, and and Ravensbrück followed that basic design. And the basic design was to have them living in these big blocks, which were, you know, designed in these kind of um, grid system. The the whole point to make control easy, to, to, Mm -hmm. to, to reduce any sense of individuality. So they all lived in these great big blocks. To have the prisoners themselves working to to to, to run as as what they called in the mail camps the capos, but in the Ravensbrück mm-hmm. they called them the different language, but they called them the block overs, the block leaders. And also, they had the great big high wall, the the, the 16 foot high wall around it with the single gate. Um, and like many of the male camps, Ravensbrück was positioned in in an area of of, of natural beauty because. The, the, the extraordinary view was that, um, that Himmler himself um, held to was that these places should be in places in of, of, of natural beauty and, and, and often near woods. The Ger- thought that the sort of soil, um, that this was where that the SS could sort of somehow gain inspiration and strength from the German soil. And, 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 and this would be, uh, and so so often the, the German houses and the condition for the SS, what they, were, they were set in these beautiful places which would sort of inspire them to renew the German gene pool and so on. So Ravensbrook was positioned on the edge of a really very, very um, atmospheric, beautiful lake amongst woods in uh, about. 50 miles north of Berlin in the wooded area and an area of, of a string of lakes in um, Mecklenburg uh, near the town of Fürstenberg, which is a, a pretty pretty little um, German town. Uh, so to that extent, yes, it, it just followed the usual model. But the difference was that, that, that Himmler... Himmler was very strange uh, about women, and very strange about many things, uh, he, <laughs> obviously. but uh, he had very fixed views about the best way to secure the women in the camp. Uh, they, for example, there were women guards. Now, you might wonder why bother, but, but actually mm-hmm. there was a sort of strange kind of prudery almost uh, in, hmm. in Himmler, and I think he just thought it was appropriate uh, that there should be women guards, uh, but working under um, SS male officers uh, the women guards themselves um, were, were treated as second, very, very much as second-class citizens. They weren't fully part of the SS. Um, but nevertheless, there they were. And, and they didn't. They, they, certainly in the initial phases, very, very few of them ha- held weapons, but they were, had dogs because Himmler took the view that women, uh, the prisoners, the women prisoners, were far more frightened of dogs than they were of guns, whereas male prisoners are more frightened of guns. So it would be more effective to have t- dogs trained to attack and kill. And more frightening for the women. So that was a difference. There also were, although they had the, the posts around the walls of the um, the lookout posts. They, they weren't. They were only at the gate to begin with in the first, and they weren't. They didn't have armed men sitting them like you see around um, the walls of of the male camps. And in terms of the actual treatment of the women. In the earliest, uh, actually I had, a, um, I, had to, I had to correct a, a, one of our academic friends the other day when I sat on a, a stage with her when she announced to the assembled company that Roversworth was really just like an ordinary prison in its first years, which it absolutely mm. was not. Um, and the reasons it was not a many fold, it was a concentration camp in, 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 in as I've already explained, as, as, as the male camps were. But apart from anything else, the women... Uh, didn't know when they were going to get out. They were yeah. just, uh, totally um, administrative detention. Um, they, 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 they were not allowed any contact with their families or anything like that. But moreover, the, the basic rules were that they were, um, they were, they were punished with, this, with appalling forms of punishment, of standing punishment, of beating. Uh, there was a, a bunker, a prison within the prison where they could be locked up in darkness with no food for days on end, and so on and so forth. In the early days, it's certainly true that the, the, the really horrific physical torture and cruelty that you hear of men camp, men's camp probably was not happening, in fact wasn't happening in the first, say, year, two years of Ravensbrück, um, thinking of, you know, some of the worst aspects of the male camp, um, execution by hanging them upside down with wires and, and, and mm. some of the worst form of tortures on blocks but of course the women from the start as Himmler well knew because he, he studied these things he had an instinct for cruelty uh, 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 pro- probably more than anybody who's ever lived on the planet he knew that what tortured the women more than many of those physical tortures was the fact that they've been separated from their family and most of all from their children mm-hmm. and so the pure uh, spiritual moral torture was was enough for them and uh, And then as the years went on, of course, Ravensbrück caught up with the other camps and many of those similar cruelties were introduced there too. So there was a difference. It was always slightly set apart. It was always treated slightly differently. But but in the end, it was under the same system. It was under the same administration. It was the, the guards that came to Ravensbrück, both the women and the men, Moved about the other camps. Uh, you know, the commandants of Ramsbrook, the, the first commandant, Fritz Kurger, was promoted and he went to work at Madanek. And mm-hmm. um, Fritz Suren, who came as the second commandant, had, had, had trained at Sachsenhausen first mm-hmm. and so on. So they were moved. And Auschwitz, lots of coming and going with Auschwitz. So it's absolutely the same culture as any of the other camps.
0: You, In your book, you describe a world. Um, and this is my summary, of course, but in which influence and experience and access—this is what strikes me—makes all of the difference in the world to the chances of survival for the prisoners. Is that is that a fair um, summary of the kinds of things you're saying?
1: Sorry, I didn't quite catch um, your. Sure.
0: So in so 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 this is a world in which. The, the longer you've been there, the better equipped you are to survive. The more access you have to people with power, the more likely you are to survive. And the more the people in power are willing to listen to you, the more able you are to survive. That That's the sense I get from reading the book. Is that is that true?
1: It's true to a large extent. But of course, like all these things, it's also, it's also completely... Um, in many cases, totally untrue. So the way yeah. it worked was, of course, the, the most, and for me, when I, when I talk about getting inside the camp, uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of it uh, was the way that this totally invidious system that the, that the Nazis had of making everyone collaborate. And they, within the camp system, it worked in such a way that, that all the prisoners except barring a few notable exceptions, in some way sort of tried to make their lives better. They saw survival by being favoured in some way by the regime. Now, from the very start, as I said at the beginning, they they used prisoners to help them run the camps and um, uh, because they could not have, 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 as they recognised, they could not have run the camps. Uh, without the help of the prisoners, A, because they didn't have enough SS people to do it, and they would have had a, a big kind of control problem if, if they'd not been able to quieten the prisoners by using the prisoners themselves. So in the early days, um, you have the first Germans and then the Polish prisoners, they come into the camp, the new arrivals are always treated the worst. So if you take the Poles for an example, when they came in, began to come in in big numbers in, in 1940 and 41, and um, they were treated by far the worst. They were the filthy mm. Slavs. They were absolutely hated. You know, they were the enemy because they were trying, still trying to do Poland at the time. Uh, but the Poles were very wise to the fact that they could look after themselves if they got some of the good jobs in the camp. Now, at that time, the, those good jobs were held by the previous incomers, the Germans, and a lot of them were... Um, held jobs as the blockovers. now the block over the block leader um was completely under the control of the of the women ss guards and the male ss guards but they had a lot of power they could um, if they kept their block under good control in good order uh, clean everyone you know in bed on time up for the morning uh, uh, roll call on time and so on there was much less likely to be any really um violent incidents you know they were less likely to be punished as if have their food withheld from them it wasn't impossible but it was less likely mm-hmm. so there was this incentive always to do the job of the ss for them and you can see why that would be one would see it the same way uh, to take a, a particular case in point uh, there was an extraordinary story of a wonderful austrian woman called katie leiter who was a professor of of sociology she'd um she'd studied at heidelberg and um she was a very uh important voice on 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 women's rights in austria um in the uh, in the 20s and 30s well she was arrested because she'd been in the resistance in vienna and she came to ravensburg a very strong character she um her, her her husband and her two boys got away and in fact um, one of them is still living in new york city um, but Katie was taken to Ravensbrook, and she was 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 a leader in a different way. She was Jewish, uh, and no doubt we'll come on to that point. But as 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 a Jewish prisoner, she didn't really have the chance to be a block over or to have mm-hmm. one of these jobs. But nevertheless, she was of such moral strength that she people looked up to her, and they found strength in just in her um, wisdom, if you like, and also her moral and physical strength. But Katie took the view very early on, even she took the view that that it was right for her non-Jewish friends to take jobs as blockovers. And it was right even for these non-Jewish friends to uh, accept the the terrible treatment of the Jewish prisoners because by doing so, they could uh, nevertheless round the back of the system, help people in general. So she encouraged Mm. others to take these jobs. Um, she thought it would help everyone. Uh, Katie went to one of the gas chamber very early on, one of the very earliest gassings when prisoners was selected and, and taken to, to outside the camp to gas chambers at the, the euthanasia centers. And in a sense, Katie's story shows us this terrible, terrible dilemma that your collaboration in the end may well have helped some people to survive mm-hmm. and given mm-hmm. people a better life for a short term, but in the end, the people it helped most were the SS, and and she herself became a victim of the system. So uh, to to, to see your point, yes, those that were lucky, those that that the German, the SS liked, and they liked you if you spoke German, that was absolutely crucial, because they found it less difficult to abuse you if you were a German speaker, not impossible, but, uh, 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 but easier, And so a lot of the German prisoners and then, of course, the Poles, a lot of the Poles did speak German. The Poles then found themselves good jobs. So by the time you wind the clock forward towards the last period, the French arrived, for example, in 1944. By that time, all the good jobs in the camp were taken. There were no more Hmm. to be had anyway. The French had arrived too late. Not only that, but the French were very bloody minded. They didn't want these jobs. Of all the groups, Hmm. the French were... Were their own worst enemy as prisoners at the time said if only they had you know got their act together been more organized you know got themselves some influence more of them would have survived and the french answer to that would be you know why the hell should we you know we weren't going to take bloody ss jobs (laughs) and so on and you can only but admire them for that while at the same time Mm -hmm. watching them die yeah. Because they had no access to extra food. Food by that time was desperately short. You know, they would they were desperately sick. They, des- they needed the medical help. They had their networks to get them bits and pieces of medicine and so on and so forth. So, yes, to some extent, the longer you're in the camp, if, if you'd been chosen, uh, you were likely to survive. But uh, the other point being on pure physical health, I mean, uh, they didn't have the time to build up a strength either. It was a shock. It was a physical shock. Those that arrived later arrived when the camp was at its worst. A lot of them were physically least prepared, particularly the French. I mean, the Slavs had been, and the Poles, and and the Ukrainians and the Russians, you know, they'd been through famines. They'd worked in the fields. They were physically much stronger and able to, simply the food, actually. The food was this root they ate, which just gave the mm-hmm. French diarrhea the minute they swallowed a mouthful, hmm. so a lot of it was the physical strength as well, but um, uh, but having said all of that, at the end of the day, the other thing that is, 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 uh, is very clear is that although of course, to some extent, the longer you were there, and the better job you'd had in the camp, the more likely you were to survive at the same time it became so random so arbitrary mm-hmm. towards the end the method of killing the need to kill the selections were so arbitrary that many people would say that by the end this no longer no longer held true anybody could be a um, poor victim at any time
0: one of one of the things i really noticed in your book is the way in which the women who came brought the kind of attitudes and sometimes prejudices and stereotypes with them that they, that they had before they came to the camp, that, that also shaped their behavior in the camp. I'm, I'm reminded of the, um, the way in which many, at least in your description, many of the women in the camp looked down on people who had been prostitutes before they arrived at the camp.
1: Yes, that um, was very, very striking. <clears throat> and in fact, it wasn't only in the camp, we can actually say for many years afterwards, the, mm. the, the story of the prostitutes uh was one that I suppose was one of the ones that i find found most distressing and most mm. depressing for all sorts of reasons um, as you say, within the camp itself, these women were looked down on they were had been at the bottom of the heap out there in society, and they were at the bottom of the heap in the camp too um mm. They, these women, uh, in many ways, suffered more than anyone because they, they they couldn't even tell themselves there was a reason for them being there. You know, they at least the political prisoners at least could say to themselves, "Well, you know, we were in the resistance and we can carry on yeah. being in the resistance here in the camp and we can, in our small ways, you know, we can we can organize against things." But these these poor women um, couldn't really understand why they were even there and 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 so they were treated the worst and and after the war uh nobody ever wrote about them and they didn't write about themselves so they were completely forgotten and they of course they didn't leave testimony because those that survived because they didn't want to sort of you know boast about um why they'd been arrested in the first place um families often uh, you know their own families had often, often being themselves very dysfunctional families and and so on, and, and they didn't get any money, they didn't get the compensation. It was only really in the 90s, the late 90s, that people began to treat them in any way as, as victims. Hmm. Um, and and yet amongst the group, I mean, some of the things that I was most, um, in a way, excited to, to, to be able to pull together were the stories tracking down the names of the prostitutes was... Was one of the most difficult things, and I, I didn't, I didn't succeed anything like as, as much as I would like to have done. Um, it, I, I didn't actually find any survivors. I, I did try, and I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't find families either. But I'm sure they're out there. It was, it would have taken, uh, I think, a concerted sort of six months to to to, to, to succeed there. But I did find. Uh, two uh, wonderful examples, which, which go against all these prejudices. Um, the first one was uh, Elsie Krug. Now she was from, uh, she was a German prostitute who'd worked in Dusseldorf, but her name was was was, was mentioned because she was mentioned in, in the book of another very well-known German survivor called Greta Buber Neumann. Because Elsie Krug was a, a very big figure in the in the so-called asocial bloc. And she hmm. had helped um Greta Buber Neumann, who was the block over there, to, to, to control these asocial women. And she was I looked into her case a little and she described this wonderful woman with brown eyes and a strong voice and a great wit and, and how she would regale Greta with stories of how she'd been a sadomasochistic expert prostitute hmm. in Düsseldorf and so on. And she described her and how but how she was this wonderful woman that also worked in the potato cellar and she'd smuggled potatoes out at great risk to her own life to these poor women and so on. But, uh, but she was also uh, one of the greatest uh, heroines of the camp because very early on when uh, the, um, the commandant required that some of these asocial uh, prostitutes and other so-called asocial women should do the actual beating of other prisoners, mm-hmm. uh, Elsie Krug refused knowing what would be in store for her if she refused. And uh, she was like the other woman I mentioned earlier, Katie Leichter. She was sent to be gassed in one of the very early gassing episodes.
2: Mm.
1: Now, because Elsie's name had come up in that book, I was able to track down a little bit of her life. And again, all the prejudices quite quickly sort of begin to fall away. The minute you begin to get closer to a personality and it's not just a prostitute, which the others were, and I found that in fact Elsie, LC, Elsie's uh, father, she came from quite a sort of a father was a craftsman, um, and and they were relatively sort of I don't know what one say lower middle class, middle class family, but Elsie uh, she was a, she was a Catholic, she was uh, brought up in in a very you know good home, as they would say, and and then for some reason uh, in the Probably at some point during during the First World War, shortly afterwards, the family presumed that her father lost his, lost his job and died. Presumably, the family was in difficulties, and Elsie went to get work in Cologne in Düsseldorf, probably as a as a home help, which is what a lot of young women did at that time when their families were very short of money. And presumably, at that time, we don't know how or why. Uh, perhaps she was put on the street. Um, she turned to prostitution, probably out of necessity, almost certainly, mm-hmm. and so on. And 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 um, we even tracked her file down to uh, her arrest file. So mm-hmm. there was Elsie. I mean, why was she in any less uh, a victim? She actually, her story should be held up as an example of, of of extraordinary courage, defying you know the SS in the camp in a way that the majority of prisoners never had the courage to do. Um, and yet she'd been entirely forgotten. There's no reason to suggest that there were not many, many other Elsie Krugs amongst yeah. the prostitute group. Mm-hmm. We just don't know about them. And, as, and also, just to mention the French, uh, the, many French prostitutes were also sent to Ravensbrook. and this was mm. because during the occupation of um, France, uh, the, uh, the SS, of course, used French brothels all the time, and of which mm-hmm. there were many, especially in the ports, and um, a lot of these women were, were 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 arrested because they'd given the SS syphilis literally on those grounds mm. and they were shipped off to the camps for this reason um or uh, some of them were thought were accused of other things too accused of spying or whatever it was and again these women were completely disowned by the grand french countesses and all the many sort of you know uh, political prisoners who, who thought they were, they were really not worth mentioning after the war, nor did they get any mm-hmm. compensation. There were many, many thousands of them, um, not just in Rama's but also in, in work camps. And again, it, I was determined to try and identify at least one of them, rather than have them as this amorphous mass of, of, of prostitutes, which was all one uh, ever heard them described as. And eventually, I finally... Went to an archive, um, a French local archive, and to see if he had any, any records of, of the roundups of these prostitutes, because I was told the French police files might still exist, and if there were any names. And it so happened, and luck, it often plays a very, very big part in research, mm. that this particular archivist was interested in the subject, because he had had a relative in Ravensbrook, and he mm. pointed me in the direction of another survivor, whose story he knew, and this particular side was a school teacher, knew about one of these French prostitutes because uh, she'd been in the camp with her and they both came from Le Havre and uh, French port city. And my uh, contact uh, knew about her because she, again, had helped her and she'd helped her by smuggling articles of clothing that were, gay, that were being washed at one of the subcamps to people when during the fleeting winters and she bumped into this woman again uh, after the war in La Havre and um, it turned out that uh, it wasn't even clear she was a prostitute she almost certainly was a prostitute but what she said was that the uh, she'd had a, a love affair with an American airman who'd come to her, her, her brothel or her cabaret bar I think as she called it um, and uh, had promised to marry her after the war. Uh, she was then arrested as a prostitute, sent to survived, went back, and the American airman did indeed keep his promise, came back to the Harbour and uh, married her. And they went off to live in America. Hmm. So, and, and the point was that her, she had actually saved this man's life by having yeah. him uh, hide out in her brothel. And of course this was another thing that the prostitutes often did. They were used as safe houses for the escape line people, and particularly for the American and British airmen were put in on the escape lines down to get out of occupied France and they hid in these bottles. So hmm. why was it that, that, that the rest of the world, and indeed the other camp prisoners, could not recognize that these women, you know, many of them were as courageous as anyone, and yet they were completely written out of the story.
0: Hmm. One of the other ways... or or maybe I should say there are a number of ways in which, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, but a number of ways in which there are some subjects in your book that simply aren't discussed, at least to my knowledge, in books about male camps. And and one of them is pregnancy. Can you talk a little bit about pregnancy in the camp?
1: Yes, well, this is, again, an extraordinarily distressing aspect of the story. I mean,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Ravensbrook, is important for many reasons in my view, but one, one of the, the sort of big reasons in terms of the whole Nazi wider picture is that, of course, the, the whole intention that Hitler had and Himmler had to implement was to stop the wrong people giving birth. You know, that we were trying to control the, the whole g- genetic uh, production of the German race. And yet, here was a camp for women where, obviously, there were going to be pregnant women. And, and so a lot of what was happening at Ravensbrück had to be to stopped babies being born because these were mothers that we didn't want to reproduce. So in the early days they controlled it by simply not allowing pregnant women into the camp and they could do that because it was small in the early days and they could mm-hmm. sift out pregnant women. Anybody who did arrive who was pregnant was sent off to have their baby elsewhere and the babies taken away from them. In the later years this became increasingly impossible because more and more women were arriving and if you imagine a lot of these women uh, from occupied countries were being swept up from the streets or whatever it was. And of course, a large percentage of them were bound to be pregnant, simply by, you know, statistically.
2: Yeah. So,
1: the, in the early days, they, the abortions were carried out and they were carried out in the most cruel and um, unhygienic and dangerous fashion uh, very late on in pregnancy, often often in circumstances of butchery. And, um... One of the most extraordinary stories were the the, the co-opting of of midwife prisoners and as one particular famous example called Gerda Kernheim, who's a German midwife, arrested for performing abortions which were Mm. illegal (laughs) under German law uh, because obviously the perfect, genetically um, perfect uh, women should have as many children as possible and if they were having abortions, that was illegal. But inside the camp, abortion was necessary so this woman who'd been arrested for abortions outside the camp was required to help perform them inside the camp and she had the job of disposing of the fetuses and sometimes of little babies when they were actually born and Mm. one picks up this series of very distressing testimony of how these babies were born and the fetuses were Disposed of in the early days before there was a, a crematorium in the boiler, boiler of, the, of the camp. And Gerda Kernheim was seen and is described by several witnesses uh, carrying the fetuses over, across the camp in a bucket and literally throwing them into the boiler room. And this was one of the abiding sort of images of horror for many of the women. Uh, so, pregnancy as such was not allowed, that these abortions were carried out. Then, uh, even later in the life of the camp, um, the number of pregnant women arriving became so large that they couldn't carry out enough abortions. And this happened particularly after the uh, Warsaw Uprising of the summer of 1944, when women arrived from Warsaw, 12,000 women arrived in a short space of time, uh, seized off the streets of Warsaw during the crushing of Warsaw, and a very large number of them were pregnant partly because quite a number of them had been raped during the crushing of Mm. Mm Warsaw, and then the camp were simply uh, they simply didn't know what to do and the edict uh went out that the babies should be born now at first sight to the women this was the most wonderful thing ever because a, a baby was to be born in Ravensbrück and you know for women uh, this was a moment of extraordinary joy, which they couldn't, um, in a sense, they couldn't resist celebrating. Although in their heart of hearts, they must have known that, that, that this couldn't be how it would turn out. And indeed it wasn't, because the purpose was, the most efficient way to kill these babies, In as Himmler had, had figured out, was to allow them to be born and then allow them to die by simply not feeding them. And so mm-hmm. these babies were starved to death hundreds of them. They were mm. born and then they died. And they even set up a, in order to, they were always trying to keep calm in the camp to, to, to not allow people to really see what was going on. They fooled everyone by even creating what they called a kinderzimmer, a baby room, where the, the the babies could could be put in cots. And, and there was even a midwives were put in to, 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 to help the babies in the cots. But the fact was that the mothers were even allowed to come and, feed them. But of course, this just doubled the torture because the mothers had no milk because they were themselves semi starved um, working in slave labor, physical jobs during the day. They, they simply hadn't got the milk to feed their babies. So you have this, I mean, I defy anyone to uh, describe to me a greater torture in any camp uh, ever than the torture of the mother thinking she can go and feed her newborn baby and finding that she has got no milk and that the baby is dying. And as mm. the days and the weeks passed, she saw her baby reduced from uh, quite healthy, initial newborn baby to, uh, as they all described in this very, very upsetting testimony of old men and old women. And this really is one of the, the, the horror stories of Ravensbrook and one that. One sort of feels I actually do devote a chapter to it. Um, yeah. There is great heroism that comes out of this, too, as there always is with these stories, that the women that worked there did their best to save as many babies as they could, and they fought gallantly to sort of steal small amounts of baby milk, and they did manage to 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 keep some of them alive. Um, but the horror is really overwhelming, and i I don't think that it it has been written about before. And it certainly has never featured in any of the books about the camps written by men.
2: Yeah.
0: So one of the things I guess that really wondered, the, the impressions I was left, if you're uh, reading your book, is that the end of the war took far longer than we often think of it taking, and and brought a kind of op, combination of hope and fear along with it that it's maybe hard to imagine. What, why is it that that women what were what were they afraid of and what did they hope at the end of the war?
1: Well, I think that um one of the reasons what you pick up from Ralph's book, and again this is why the chronology is indeed your yeah. friend as you're doing it, is, you know, here we are sitting in Britain and, and, and in America and you get, we, we have these sort of moments that everyone knows about in the war. There's D-Day in 1944 mm-hmm. when finally, you know, we got there and the, the armies went in and, and we were on the way to victory and so on. And, and then there was the liberation of the camps and so on, and then there was the victory. Uh, from the point of view of the women, uh, particularly in Ravensbrück, if you imagine, they are way out to the east there
2: yeah. of
1: Germany. They were never going to be liberated by... America or Britain who were coming from the West and they were going to be one of the last ones to be liberated because the Russians would reach them last too because there's a bang in the middle if you like between the advancing Russians and the advancing American and British. So for so them D-Day, although they got news of it and of course they were excited um, they knew that it wouldn't you know, that they wouldn't be uh, rescued any day soon. Now in terms of what their hopes were nevertheless you have this curious situation whereby New prisoners were arriving
2: Mm. in
1: that summer of 1944 from France, which had now was right at, was close to the, uh, obviously to the excitement of D-Day because France was being liberated in the summer of 1944. I'll give you an example of a prisoner who was arrested during the process of uh, of French liberation, and she was called Jenny Rousseau. She was a very, very brave, courageous French woman who'd worked on, given lots of secrets to the Allies about uh, the V-2 bomb, amongst other things. Very young, very charismatic. She was captured at the very last minute and sent to Ramsbrook, arrived there in about August 1944. Now, Jenny thought, she was very young, and as she later admitted to me, very naive, although very hey. courageous, also very naive. She thought the war would be over very soon, and that yeah. the Allies would reach Rumsfeld any day. So when she arrived at the camp, she told all the other women not to worry. They've got to be strong, that the Allies would be there to rescue them within weeks. Mm. And in fact, when she was sent to work in the munitions factory, she said, look, now is the time for us to rise up and protest. We're not going to do what they tell us any longer. You know, our boys are going to be here any day now. We have won the war. We're going to protest. So she's launched this extraordinary protest against making German arms in this munitions factory. Uh, and one can only admire her on one level. But the trouble was that in fact it took nine months before mm-hmm. the Allies actually reached Ravensbrook. And in that time those women who took part in Jenny's protest, by that time most of them were dead. They had been punished so badly at another punishment camp that um, her protest in retrospect looked wonderfully courageous and also devastatingly foolhardy. So uh, the answer is that their hope was very short-lived in the summer of 1944. Mm. And then it went on through the winter. Um, They didn't believe they were going to have to live through another winter, but they did. Mm. And furthermore, by the turn into the next year, um, Ravensbrück was by now so overcrowded and the camps further east were being evacuated and women... Well, they'd been evacuated ahead of the Russian arrival and women marched to the west. And the only place they could be taken was Ravensbrück and also uh, onto Belsen. But many of them came to Ravensbrück. Uh, The camp was so overcrowded by this time that uh, Himmler Himmler put up a gas chamber just Mm -hmm. to reduce the numbers and get some sort of control. So the worst was still to come in those last months. By far the worst happened in the last weeks and months. And as they were hoping, and the final weeks did come, and they knew by now that the Americans and the British and the Russians were very close, they also could see that more people were being gassed than ever. So the hope, as you say, and the the utter fear and despair were combined in this excruciatingly desperate last few weeks. You
0: you mentioned the gas chambers and one of the things you 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 say is that this is kind of a difficult camp to classify. It's not a killing camp, but there are people killed. It's not initially a labor camp and yet over time there grows up connections with companies and with subcamps. Um how how does Himmler or why does Himmler, or maybe I should say you draw a distinction between the killings that happens earlier in the war and the gassing and killing of the prisoners at the end, which is no longer ideological, but is somewhat practical and somewhat maybe just from momentum.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I came to be somewhat, I don't know, impatient with the, again, going back to our, the academics we discussed, at the, middle, mm-hmm. the academic mm-hmm. scientific distinctions. Historians like, may, maybe journalists like stories perhaps, historians like mm-hmm. theories. And they stick to their theories, come what may. And the the historical uh, assumption is that there were different sorts of camps. There were the extermination camps, there were the death camps, there were the uh, concentration camps, there were the labor camps, etc. Now, to some extent, obviously those distinctions apply. The uh, the, 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 the extermination camps that were set up to primarily or solely to kill the Jews, um, particularly the well-known Treblinka, Sobibor, and so on, were different in the sense that if you were Jewish and you were taken to those camps, you were taken for one reason, one reason only, and that was to be gassed, exterminated, soon after arrival. So those are called extermination camps. Auschwitz had, was, a, was a hybrid. It had um, that, but it also had labor camp aspects. Ravensbrück and some of the other concentration camps also that doesn't mean that they were any better or Mm -hmm. any nicer. I'm not saying that they were the same as the extermination camps. And numerically, obviously, what happened at Ravensbrück was tiny compared with the numbers killed at the the Eastern death camps. But that doesn't mean that they were not just as bad in their own way or indeed the suffering and the torture and the Mm -hmm. extermination that happened with them was equally a part of the whole Nazi horror. So in terms of the gas chamber, for example, first of all, Ravensbrück played a big role in the early phase of extermination by gas, which was called the euthanasia gassings, whereby uh, Hitler was um, gassing his own disabled, his own mentally ill. Um, in the early years of the war now a lot of people were taken from concentration camps like Ravensbrück and I've mentioned Katie Leichter and Elsie Krug were victims of this to these euthanasias so in a way gassing was outsourced in the early days Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. they were also taken to Auschwitz to be gassed those that that they didn't want in the camp in the early days before Ravensbrück got its own own gas chamber gassing did happen They they were taken elsewhere to be gassed um And they were killed, and there were mass executions and shootings all the way through. But you're right, towards the end of the uh, period of the camps, after the Auschwitz gas chamber has been dismantled, and Treblinka and Sobibor and so on have been overrun by the Russians, a gas chamber is set up at Ravensbrück long Mm. after they've stopped gassing at these camps. And as you say, the reason was not, uh, didn't fit in with the the main central um, Jewish genocide, because the purpose was not to kill Jews, it was not to kill asocials, it was not to kill political business, it was just to kill. And it was to mm. kill because, well, one looks for the reasons and the reasons that I saw from testimony and from accounts that one could, could get, glean from the Germans was because uh, to, to keep control because this place was, was, was out of control, disease was spreading and, and, and they needed to keep the numbers down to kill off survivors because Hitler said there should be no prisoners left in his camps when the Russians overran them, mm. to kill off the evidence by killing off the, the women, uh, and and also because, in fact, Rudolf Hurst himself, the uh, commandant of Auschwitz, who was there at Ravensbrück to help with this gas chamber, said in his own memoir, because they couldn't stop killing and a hmm. sort of way of proceeding had taken over. It was a modus operandi. That's what they did. If there was, if they needed to exercise control, they needed to get rid of people they didn't want, they gassed them. So it was a logic that had become part of the, intrinsically part of the way they operated. Uh, it, there was no ideology behind it by now. As you said, it was, it was practical. It was what they did. How they responded. So they set up hmm. a gas chamber at Ravensbrook. And for me, uh, and not only a gas chamber, they also had mobile gas chambers. In a sense, mm. the whole horror came full circle because the exterminations had started in many of these um, extermination camps with mobile gas chambers. And mobile gas chambers were also used at Ramsbrook in the last week because it was convenient to use them. They would be easy to dismantle when the Allies reached, re- reached the place and um, to destroy so uh, this to me was a, a, a story that was a crucial part of the. whatever you may or may not uh, think about the Ravensbrook story in itself, the way uh, the Nazis sort of in, came to an end themselves, you know, the last phase of, their, of what the worst that mankind can do to each other in the end is to, is to sort of gas fellow, fellow members of the human race for no reason at all. And that is yeah. how it ended. And it
0: ended like that at Ravel's book. Well, we, we've taken a lot of your time, and we've barely touched the surface of the book, but I'd, I'd like to end just with two or three shorter questions. And, and, and one of them is you've told a lot of stories about uh, prisoners. You, you also tell stories about guards. And I wonder if you could tell the story of, of maybe the lead, the person who starts out, at least, as the lead female um, administrator or, 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 or leader in the camp. and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name. Joanna Langefeld, is that right? Johanna
1: Langefeld, yes. Uh, yeah. Can you talk
0: just a little bit about her,
1: please? Yes. well, she uh, The, the guards are fascinating, and, and, and actually I do write about them a lot, a lot in the book. Um, yeah. She is she was one of the ones that interested me most, because she is so in a sense, untypical of how we imagine them to be. Um, and indeed, in some ways, she was untypical. She was uh, a middle-aged woman by the time she got the job she'd actually worked in the in in the prison system before she came to Ravensbrook. she was the she'd been bo- born um in a in a small uh, town on, in the Ruhr, from a, a her father was a blacksmith um and she was very religious she was lutheran and she's a very decent woman in in many respects and no doubt if she hadn't been co-opted to, to go and work in the camps, she would have led a perfectly respectable life, um, probably as, uh, in, in, in the prison system in some way, shape or form. But she, uh, she needed the work. She, um, she was a single mother in the early 30s. Um, she, like so many people, uh, had, had seen the disasters of World War I and what it had done to her family and, and thrown people out of work and so on. And she was a proud German woman as, as so many were. And they'd actually supported the election of Adolf Hitler, she got co-opted to work in Lichtenberg, the first precursor of Ravensbrück, and then became the first chief guard at Ravensbrück. Now, Langerfeld was as tough as old boots. She was a disciplinarian. She, um, she believed in, 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 in all sorts of collective punishments. She believed in terrible standing punishments, in, in, in um, deprivation of food, in, 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 in slave labor, and so on. She, but she didn't like to beat and this showed up very quickly she never hit herself and she disapproved of beating and beating punishment and she fought to prevent it happening at Ravensbrück. and this was an early sign that she sort of didn't although she admired Himmler, admired hitler she wasn't going to go along with the system but nonetheless she did go along with it but she was also a very religious woman and she prayed to god to stop the evil happening, she said later, and that sounds all very contradictory, but to some extent one can sort of believe it to some extent. But then she would have been bought into the system that she was then helping Germany win the war, you know, and she was very subject to the usual propaganda that was around and so she she didn't leave but apparently she threatened to do so in the early years, but she was then put in this extraordinary position of being sent to Auschwitz as the first uh, chief guard of the women's camp in Auschwitz because she was the most capable woman in the system. She was set, sent there to um, set up the uh, women's camp at Auschwitz. She then uh, resigned or was sacked from her job at Auschwitz. We don't quite know exactly what happened, but she returned to Ravensbrück. She was obviously incredibly shaken, horrified by what she'd seen mm. at Auschwitz. She hadn't um, she didn't really talk about this, but she talked to one or two of the prisoners who became her confidant. Eventually, she was sacked from Ravensbrook because she finally started to resist some of the worst things that were happening. She couldn't abide the medical experiments that were done on some of the Polish prisoners, and she could see that these were grotesque in the extreme. And she tried, and she particularly couldn't. Uh, tolerate the fact that those that had been experimented upon were then being shot because they were useless uh, for further experiments. Mm-hmm. This, in a sense, was the tipping point for um, for Johanna Langefeld, and she protested to the commandant about it. It was as a result of that that she lost her job. Um, so she showed she she sort of takes you into a picture of a woman who who was a, a supporter of Hitler, but she was. Also had managed to maintain a certain a certain degree of right and wrong, and finally, you know, she 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 she, she confronted the wrong and had to stand up to it. Um, but she and she was there until 1943. But she was succeeded by a much more typical Ravensburg guard, and that was a young woman called Dorothea Vince who was, um, you know, 2021 20, by this time. She was a forester's daughter she went along with everything she was told to do, by all accounts, never questioned uh, any of the horrific cruelties that she was a part of to, and was ultimately executed by the British after the War Crimes Trial. Um, She actually is one of the most terrifying figures in the book because she really typifies the, uh, what Hannah Arendt famously called the banality of evil, because she was so ordinary, and so apparently lacking in any awareness of any form of morality, that uh, apparently before she went to the uh, to, to, to the execution chamber, she turned around to one of the the, the, the the British officers standing there and said, I hope you don't think we were all evil, um, which just tells you something about how she didn't really get it even then.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and it would basically be she, 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 she was a young woman, she'd never known anything but Hitler's rule, she would have been subject to all the propaganda of, of the Nazi education system, and she thought what she was doing at Ramsbrook was normal. Uh, that is the most terrifying thing, how easy it was to co-opt people like Dorothea Bintz into this world so that they saw their actions and indeed the whole ethos of the system as normal. I, I guess I'd like to
0: to use that as a jumping-off point for, for my last question, which is that that you've been living with this this these stories, with the stories of of, of heroes, but the stories of of ordinary people who got corrupted or, or bought into the system for years and years. How did how did doing this book change you?
1: Um, a lot of people have asked me that. People come up to yeah. me sometimes at talks and say, you know, do you have nightmares and and did you have mm. nightmares and and so on. Um, I don't. I don't think it changed me um, uh, as a person. I think that um, it. I. I, um, my, I'm, I. I had to get write the story. I think I realised that I mm-hmm. had to stick with the, the job of, of, of writing it in a way that people would read, which sort of inured me a little bit from some of the, the most horrific and depressing aspects of it. But that's the sort of. In a way, the mm-hmm. writer and, and, and mm-hmm. the hardened journalist in me. But in terms of my attitudes towards things, I think it's changed me. I think, I think it's made me ask myself the question. Um, well, of course, one asks oneself what would one have done, and one hopes every reader asks. That's partly the purpose mm-hmm. of the book: what, well, how would you, what would you have done? Would you have taken the job as a block leader? Would you have have have, have supported this protest that Jenny Russo started? Um, even though the consequences were terrible and so on. So it makes you think, what would you have done? How in, and, and, but the most important thing, I think, is it makes you think how important it is to stand up, to follow your instincts and stand up mm. to evil when it seems to present itself to you. Because the most invidious thing, as I've said to me, when I've understood how it worked, was this sense of collaboration and the way everyone would be, that the, the Nazis knew human nature so well, they knew that all people would, would rationalize to themselves the need to collaborate, and therefore they could manipulate everyone. And I think the need to stand up to it, and the, and the need for essential sort of um, boundaries to be set. Uh, for, to, to give you an example, um, I suppose one of the, uh, my real heroines, uh, who I haven't mentioned at all, was one of the leaders of the Russian uh, Red Army, a mm-hmm. woman called Yevgenia Klem. Now, she was remarkable in many ways because she, uh, she, had a, 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 she was another older woman, very experienced woman who had a deep sense of, of, of morality and a great moral strength. But she presented herself and her Red Army women as prisoners of war. And she used to cite the Geneva Conventions to the Germans and say, you have no right to do this to us because we're prisoners of war and you must obey the Geneva Conventions. She mm. knew that they would ignore them she knew that Stalin hadn't even signed the Geneva Conventions. She knew she was she was, you know, hanging onto a straw. However, it was all she'd got. And actually, the Germans did listen to some extent to what she said because they were slightly worried about the Geneva Conventions and, and how they might be seen after the war and they might be tried. But what I'm getting around to saying, I suppose, how has it changed me? It's made me understand how incredibly important it is for us to hold on to those, those international um, sort of yardsticks, if you like, that, that the Geneva Convention certainly stood for. And, and they have helped in their small way people in these times. And how horrifying it is today to see how we have completely let them slip, um, all those forms of, of international uh, law that, 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 that try to sort of protect prisoners and civilians in these times. Are now less valued and, and more trounced than ever, as far as I can see, and it's what a, a tragic thing that is. To uh, having written a book like this, um, it's a terribly sad thing to see because these women all came out, the survivors, saying, you know, this must never happen again. Those that wrote their memoirs did so because yeah. they wanted it never to happen again. They really didn't believe it ever could happen again that the world would let it happen again. But I believe that it could easily happen again. And one of the reasons is that we've let all our our protections fall away, um, and that's a very dangerous situation.
0: Well, that seems an appropriate point to to end the interview. As I say, it's it's a wonderful book, and I cannot recommend it enough to to, to those listening to the show. Um, and I hope they will go out and they will read it, and they will buy it, and they will recommend it to other people. Uh, but for now, uh, uh, thank you so much for your time and for thank your pleasure. stories. Um, and we appreciate it so much. Well,
1: thank you very much for having me on the
0: on the show. All right. Well, perhaps we'll have a talk, uh, chance to talk again later. But for now, um, take
1: care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Sarah Helm about her new book, Ravensbrook: Life and Death in Hitler's Concentration Camp for Women. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll continue our summer-long series of interviews about the camps and ghettos in World War II by interviewing Nick Vaxman, the author of An Outstanding New History of the Concentration Camps. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.